And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest ye become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This is the word of God. Thanks, Matthew. Good job. Um, you didn't get too many big words, though, so that's cool. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, Kathy will beat you in the back there. Uh, the, why am I wearing a suit jacket? Because I wanted to. I can't do this in the summer. It's too hot. I'm just baking. So it was cool enough out, and I said, I'm wearing a suit jacket. So that's why I did it. Um, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like you're not in trouble or anything. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer before we turn to the word. Lord, we do gather together this morning to exalt you. We, we gather to call out your name, to recognize and remember and announce how great and wonderful you are. And Lord, the, the reason that we are a people gathered together to do that is because of your great mercy. And so, Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you have promised to us and all that lies ahead for us. And uh, Lord, we want to remember those who are um, not able to join us this morning, I think especially of Bob. Kemple, I pray that you would continue to strengthen and, and encourage him, Lord, that he would um, be able to leave the assisted care soon and uh, return home. I know he's aching to be home, but Lord, we don't want him to go before it's appropriate. So Lord, I pray that you're strengthening him after his surgery and he's recovering well. Father, we pray for Judy again, that you would bless her as she's waiting for Bob, as she's going to be visiting him and, and uh, being a, a faithful and a loving wife. Lord, would you surround her with uh, friends, especially from our congregation, who would care for her and uh, support her and just be with her in this time. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless the Kempels, that you'd restore Bob's health, and that we would have many more years to celebrate you together with them. And so have mercy on them. Uh, Father, I want to pray for uh, the Stromberg family again. Uh, Lord, they still are dealing with a lot going on. Uh, with uh, family matters and, uh, and all of that. So, Lord, would you grant uh, Dan and Kathy an extra measure of grace, an extra measure of wisdom, an extra measure of strength, 
And uh, Lord, I pray that um, that as they are aching for their family and those difficulties, Lord, that we as a congregation would ache with them and love them and, and support them. So Lord, would you remind us all this week to be praying for them? Just pop into our brains uh, a picture of Dan and Kathy's head and remind us to pray for them throughout the week so that they would have what they need. And uh, Father, have mercy on them. Lord, I want to pray for our upcoming elections. Uh, Lord, there's plenty of scriptures that say that you establish the rulers of men. And in a democracy, we can forget that. We can think that we do that. But Lord, this is your doing through us, through the electric, uh, the electorate um, choosing these people. But Lord, you rise up kingdoms and you bring them down and, and you are active in the affairs of men and you put people in positions of power and authority as you deem to be right. And so, Lord, we pray as we approach this midterm election, um, as we're looking at, um, at two not great options uh, across the board, Lord, would you um, help your church to be faithful to the gospel, to Jesus Christ, our King first. But Lord, help us to be really good, responsible citizens, to vote wisely and, and uh, be informed. And Lord, we pray that, um, that through the Christian influence, through our participation, Lord, you might uh, steer this country back towards a, a better path, towards a more righteous path. So have mercy on us, we pray. Have mercy on our nation. Um, as, we, uh, as we serve our King here in our democracy, we just pray for your mercy. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we, we ask that you'd be with us, that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to see and to understand what it is that this story is telling us this morning. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an article in the March 5th, 1933 edition of the Chicago Daily Tribune, and no, I didn't read it personally, so don't ask. Um, it was reported that Frederick Rogers had done a thorough study of the Ark of the Covenant and determined that it was in a giant electric capacitor. Um, this was not Mr. Rogers, this was Professor Rogers. He was the dean of the Department of Engineering at Lewis Institute of Technology at the time. And so what does he mean by it's a giant capacitor? What, what a capacitor is, it's a component, and it's made up with a positive plate and a negative plate, and they're separated by an insulator. And so when it's put into a circuit, it won't let direct current pass through it. It'll charge up on the positive plate until it can find a route to send it back to the negative plate and discharge. These are a lot of fun in high school electronics class because you hook them up to a DC power supply, you charge them up, and you chuck them to your friend. And they catch it, and it shocks them, and it's, it's just a blast. So um, why did uh, Professor uh, Rogers determine that the Ark of the Covenant was a capacitor? Well, think about how the Ark was constructed. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold. So if you took a slice through it, you'd see that there was a positive on the outside and negative on the inside, and they're separated by this insulator, this wooden box. But he also said that uh, the, the mercy seat, the lid, was uh, the positive pole. This is a quote from the article. He said, the divine directions called for the construction of two cherubim of pure gold to be placed on a gold slab or mercy, street, mercy seat over top of the ark. These cherubim, uh, Professor Rogers explained, made up what he believes to be the positive pole of the circuit. So go ahead and throw that picture up. So there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the cherubim over top of it, two ladies. I don't know why it's two ladies. The cherubim in traditional uh, uh, ancient Near East culture would usually be the body of a lion and the head of a man or something like that, and they'd have wings, but it's two ladies with big wings. 
Um, so his theory was that the Ark of the Covenant, or the, the mercy seat, the plate that sat on top, didn't touch the rest of the Ark. It was, it was off of it. So that would be the positive pole. That would be the positive plate. And the box itself would be the negative. And so what he said is as smoke and, and offerings were going up, that would create static electricity in the air. And this big capacitor would store up this electric charge. And so the, the, what we would call the Shekinah glory was actually the discharge of the, the, the static glow over top of it. And, and so when you think of Uzzah reaching out to study the ark, well, this thing's a giant capacitor. It's got a huge charge. He put his hand up and it just zapped him, killed him because of the electricity discharged. Um, None of that's true. None of that works. And the reason is because there's nothing that says the mercy seat did not touch the rest of the, the ark. And if they touched, then there was no difference of potential. There was no positive and negative plate. They were just one big piece of gold. And it also doesn't work because for the inside and the outside to be the positive and the negative with the insulator between the two, there would have to be a gap between them. But the way the ark is constructed, the whole thing is coated uh, or plated in gold. There's no gap. So these naturalistic, this was popular in the 30s. They were trying to come up with naturalistic explanations for all kinds of stuff. This was when the idea that um, the exodus passing through the Red Sea was actually because they passed through on a sandbar and the wind had blown the water down low enough so they could just walk out across. And uh, there's a great joke. A, a boy comes home from uh, Sunday school and says, yeah, they, they told us in Sunday school this great miracle that the wind blew and it revealed the sandbar and Israel walked through and was delivered. So that's why they got through the Red Sea. And his dad says, why is that a miracle? He goes, because the sandbar drowned an entire Egyptian army. So they were trying to come up with these, these naturalistic explanations. And so this was an attempt to explain the power that was held in the Ark. But what we're going to see is the power of the Ark of the Covenant was not an electric, electric potential. The power of the Ark of the Covenant was the God who put his glory over top of it. The Shekinah glory wasn't an electric discharge. It wasn't static electricity. It was the presence of the Lord. And, and the problem that we're going to see is Israel kind of began to think in those terms that this was a, a tool. It was a charged tool that they could haul around and use. In other words, they began to think of God less personally and more practically. So let's take a look at this section and, and see what's happening here. So it begins in verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. I think the author there is summarizing basically Samuel's ministry, his, his, his career as a prophet. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. What he said is brought to all of Israel. And, it, and the reason I say that's kind of a summary statement is if you back up to chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord himself, or the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So I think that's kind of these big summary statements of, of Samuel. What's fascinating is we're not going to see Samuel for a couple chapters. He's going to disappear. But the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So that's what's going on, is, is, is the word has arrived. What was the word that we have so far, this early in the story? Well, this is the word of Samuel that we have so far. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel which will make the two ears of everyone who hears it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli and all, all that I have spoken concerning his house, from the beginning to the end. And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. 
Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This is the word of Samuel that all Israel has heard that is not going to fall to the ground. And this is the beginning of that story. This is how his word comes to Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Uh, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. Who started this? Where is uh, Ebenezer? None of that really matters, does it? The, the author just summarizes this section so quickly. This is not the main point. Um, I read a commentary this week that spent a great deal of time trying to figure out where Ebenezer was. I'm like, why? <laughs> it just doesn't matter. The truth is, what we get is Philistines on one side, Israel on the other, and there's, they're itching for a fight. Somebody started this. Somebody's picking a fight here. So listen to how the author just summarizes what happens. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 people or 4,000 men on the field of battle. Israel, or the Philistines drew up in, in line against Israel. Israel was defeated before the Philistines. About 4,000 people died. That didn't take 10 minutes. That would take weeks to get the armies together, to get everything in, in place, and then the battle would happen. And so this is just, the author's like, this isn't the important stuff. Let's get over this. But there is some stuff to notice here. So the way he words some things are extremely important. For example, it says that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. The word for before is the word for face in Hebrew. So it was the, the Philistines are ready to engage in battle, and in their face, you see Israel being defeated. In other words, the author is saying it wasn't necessarily the Philistines who did this. It was somebody else. It's passive voice. We don't know who. Now, whoever it was used the Philistines because it says they killed about 4,000 people that day. But the author is careful to not attribute that battle to the Philistines. Israel was defeated before the face of the Philistines. So the Philistines are the ones who killed about 4,000 men, but they're not the one that's given credit for this. So when this, this initial conflict, the two sides ram together, Israel loses 4,000, they back off, they say well, something happened. And so they, uh, verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? There you go. This is who defeated them. This wasn't the Philistines beating us up. God has defeated us before them. How did he do it? By giving us to their hands. So the elders understand something's wrong here. We've, we've misjudged something. Um, the Lord has defeated us. What should we do about this? Now, if you pause here and remember, this is still, I, I consider this kind of like the, the trailing edge of the book of Judges, the introduction to the king. If you go back to the book of Judges, what the common theme that comes up over and over again, because it's kind of in these cycles of these judges, is the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Gentiles, whichever nation it was. Some bad stuff happens, and then after a period of time, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent a judge or a prophet or somebody to deliver them. So if that's the pattern, if that's the kind of atmosphere that they're living in, what would be the appropriate response at this point? Why did God defeat us before the Philistines? What should we do? Well, maybe we should cry out to the Lord. Let's, let's go worship God. Let's go call out to God and, and ask for mercy and figure out what's going on. That's not what they did. Their response was, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh here. 
So we got beat in battle. We're going to go grab the Ark of the Covenant and we're going to bring it. Why? What are they thinking with that? Well, it's hard to tell because it's so brief, but what they didn't do is they didn't call out to the Lord. Instead, they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it and they set it down before the, uh, or brought it into the, the battle. Perhaps what they're thinking is, this is the Ark of the Covenant. This is supposed to remind God of his covenant responsibilities and he's supposed to be good to us. And he's not. So maybe he's not aware of what's going on. Let's take it from Shiloh, bring it out to the battle so he can see what's happening. And then surely he'll be faithful to his covenant and he'll defend us, right? That, that's the plan. That's not what happened. <laughs> so they send to Shiloh and they bring the Ark of the Covenant of hosts. And then the author says in verse, the end of verse 4, who is enthroned above the cherubim? So when the Ark of the Covenant was built, the cherubim around, or the, the angels that are standing on the top of it, God refers to that as the mercy seat. The glory of the Lord, we often call it the Shekinah glory, the glory of his presence, his being there, is enthroned between these cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And so when Moses dedicated the temple, he couldn't, or the tabernacle, he couldn't even go in because the glory had so filled it. It was just overwhelming. Did the glory always stay? Was it always there? If it was an electrical charge, it would always have to be there as long as there was a charge in the thing. No, every once in a while, the glory would up, lift up from there and move in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And Israel would pack up and then they'd take off and go follow it. So it's not like the glory of the Lord is somehow physically attached to the ark. It, it was there for a purpose. It is where God would come and meet with them. He would talk with them. They would, they would hear his voice from that. So when, they, when the author brings this up, he mentions that it is the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim. Was the glory, in other words, when they brought the ark, was there the Shekinah glory sitting on top of that ark as they hauled it across country and set it down in, in um, Ebenezer? I don't know for sure. It doesn't say. I think it was for a couple of reasons. Because, number one, remember what it said when we were talking about uh, Samuel was that the, the Lord appeared in Shiloh. It says he appeared to Samuel through his word, but there's a sense that his word is not too distinct from his Shekinah glory presence over that. So it, it's possible. The other reason that I think his glory was still there is because when we see next week when Hophni and Phinehas die, um, I think Hophni's wife is going to have a baby and she's going to call her son Ichabod. No glory. And she's going to be very upset, not because her husband's died, but because the glory of the Lord is gone. And what we're going to see at the end of the message today is the Philistines pick it up and haul it off. So perhaps that was the Shekinah glory. Maybe it was still there. And so the people then, when they bring the ark out, they're, they're saying, we're hauling God out here. He's, he's enthroned above the cherubim. He's going to watch this battle. He's going to remember his covenant. He's going to deliver us. Surely that must be what's going to happen. So they don't cry out to the Lord. Instead, they're going to use the ark as a tool. We're going to try to remember who God was. So What's going on? Well, the next sentence is, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Pay attention to how the author mentions the names of these two. It's never just in passing. Eli gets mentioned by name quite often. But for a while there, it was just the sons of Eli, or the priests. And now he calls them out by name again, and they are there with the Ark of the Covenant. I think Hophni and Phinehas are kind of a picture, an emblem of the spiritual atmosphere, the spiritual condition in Israel at this time. And it ain't pretty. 
It's extraordinarily what they call transactional. I'll do this, you do that. You, I'll, I'll give you this and you give me that. And, and that, that's kind of how they're approaching it. So if Hoffney and Phinehas are kind of like this, this archetype or this, this picture of what the spiritual um, condition of Israel is at the time, remember what, they, what it said about them in, in chapter 2. They would take, their servants would take a three-pronged fork and stick it into where the offering was, and whatever it pulled up, they took. This is transactional. What can I get out of this? And not only did they do that, but a little further in there, it says they sent their servants and said, give the priest uh, meat to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat, but only raw. And they said, well, hang on, just take whatever you want after you offer the fat. Nope, do it or we're going to beat you up. So it, they began to treat the presence of God, the, the relationship they had with God, this great presence of God in their, pre in their midst, they began to treat it transactionally. What can I get from this? What am I going to get out of this? So when they haul the ark out and they bring it in, they're expecting a transaction. Lord, we want you to come and see this because you have a covenant to us. Is that covenant only one way? They had a responsibility to God too. And if we take a cue from the book of Judges, they worship false gods. And then they would get beat up and then go, oh, I'm sorry, and they put it away. And so that, the, I think the, the pinnacle of that is, is Gideon. Gideon delivers them from battle. He goes and he wins this great war, and then he makes a golden ephod, and everybody sits down and worships it. This is the kind of, of atmosphere that they're in. And so Hophni and Phinehas are there with the ark. They're expecting transaction. They're expecting something from it. So the next section is what happened. This is verses 5 through 9. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. I, I just picture this like World War II. There's, there's a, a group of soldiers, and they're beaten down, and they're just they're pinned. They can't do anything. And suddenly a Sherman tank comes roaring into town. Yes, we got it. This is what the, their, their reaction is, is the Sherman tank has arrived. We're going to be delivered. But the Philistines, listen to the Philistines, as bad as the Israelites were, the Philistines are not much better. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Israel should be afraid, shouldn't they? This ark is supposed to be in the temple. It's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. The priest, the high priest, is supposed to go in there only once a year with a sacrifice. It's not a toy. They should have been terrified, and instead they're cheering because, hey, we got, we, got better, we got more superior weapons. The Philistines, however, hear about this. There's a what? And I'm sure it wasn't, hey, there's a gold box in their camp. I'm sure it must have been that Shekinah glory over top of it. This is terrifying. A god has come into the camp is what they say. It's, woe is us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. I've never seen a golden box. No, I've never seen a golden box with a glow like that before. Woe is us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? The Philistines are polytheists through and through. And so when they see the presence of the Lord, they don't suddenly become monotheists. They don't suddenly recognize, ah, the, the theology of Yahweh is he is one God. That, that's not what they do. They recognize God's presence in the way that they would. Who can deliver us from these mighty gods? And then it gets worse. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all sort of plague in the wilderness. They got the story, but it's not quite right, is it? Did God strike 
the Egyptians with plagues in the wilderness? No, he struck them in the city, right? Moses went into the, the, the emperor, it went into Pharaoh and, and said, let my people go. He didn't go out into the woods to do it. So they got the story, but they don't have it quite right. This is, this is a, an interesting question for the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Is the Bible wrong because the Philistines said that God struck them with plagues in the wilderness when clearly it was in the cities? No, because the Bible is exactly right. This is what the Philistines said. The Philistines were just wrong. So you, you have to be a little nuanced with the doctrine of inerrancy and not try to push it too far. The truth is, this is what they said. What they said was wrong because they're Philistines. So they, they, they're alarmed because they know what this God is capable of. The, the um, Egyptians were the dominant world power, economically, militarily, this, they were it. Um, we haven't seen the Assyrians or the Babylonians rise yet. Egypt, Egypt is still kind of the big deal. So what do they do? They say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. In other words, the Philistines kind of see, yep, they got the howitzer, they got the, the, the tank, but we're not going down without a fight. We're not going to roll over. And so they, they double down. So this is now what Israel's fight. This is the, the stage is now set. They've already gone together, and Israel lost 4,000. But we've got the Ark of the Covenant now. We're going to go at it again. Let's, let's draw up into battle again, and this time we'll defeat them. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his house. That didn't work. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. So the 4,000 that were killed originally, now add to that 30,000. It's, it's a massive slaughter. It gets worse. The Ark, of the, God, the Ark of God was captured. The Philistines ran up and grabbed it and trucked it off. And then the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The word of Samuel, the, the prophetic message that he was given, the word of Samuel did not fall to the ground. 34,000 foot soldiers fell to the ground. The Ark of the Covenant fell to the Philistines. But the word of the Lord came exactly true what he said. They would die in the same day, and they did. It's terrifying when it's true. It's, it's you know, I just can't believe Eli is going to at this point go, oh, well, I guess that's true. Let the Lord do what he's going to do. It's much more emotional that it's, it's, it's gripping. So what's, what's the takeaway for us in this? What are we supposed to do with this story, this, this amazing story? Well, I think what we have to remember is Yahweh, our God, Jesus, is not an impersonal God. He is not a transactional God. We don't go to him and say, if you do this, I'll do that. Or if I give you this, then will you do this for me? So in 2006, when the tsunami hit um, the, uh, um, the place where it hit, and other times when, when tragedy would happen, you would hear atheists being interviewed and they'd be all snide and, and snippety and, well, prayer doesn't work, does it? Because if you prayed in it and it still happened, then, you know, that's just pure transactionalism. You pray and disaster is not supposed to happen. So if you pray and disaster happens, then prayer doesn't work. That's because they can't conceive of a personal God. That would be like saying, you know what, I asked my friends to come over and help me move this weekend and nobody showed up. Now, does that mean, therefore, asking doesn't work? 
No, it just means these people had other things to do or they were busy or they don't like moving or they were you know, out of town or something. You're dealing with individuals, with persons who have something beyond just a transactional attitude. So when we, when we look at this and we say of God, well, Lord, I prayed and you didn't answer. That's because he's a person. He knows more than you do. He understands better than you do what's best for you. And so we don't look at it transactionally, but the impetus, the draw to a transactional relationship with God is always there. And, and, and the reason I say that is because consider what all that Israel had at this point, all that, that, that they had in their favor. All right, there wasn't a king yet, and people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, but they had the ark. They had the ark. It was right there. They had the ark of the covenant. They had the covenant with God. They recognized this ark was not just a box. This represented a promise that God had made to them. They had the Ark of the Covenant. Not only did they have the Ark of the Covenant, on top of it was the mercy seat. Speaking of God's mercy, and not only was it the mercy seat, but the glory, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God was right there. They had all of that. That was all at their disposal. They, they had access to it through a sacrificial system, through a priestly system. They had that. They had all the writings of Moses by that point. I would venture to say they probably had the writings of Joshua as well. They had the history of deliverance. The Philistines mentioned it. That, doesn't, that must mean that the Israelites knew it. They had been delivered from Egypt by mighty works of God, by a strong hand, by huge plagues. They had the history of deliverance from Egypt. They were the tribes of Israel. They were the sons of Jacob, who God had promised, who Jacob, leaning on his post, made these wonderful pronouncements and blessings on them. They were the children of Abraham. God had come to Abraham and said, your children be as numerous as the stars. They're going to fill the land. They will be a blessing. People will bless themselves by your name. They had all of these things, and yet they treated God transactionally because the word of the Lord was rare in that day. They had spent years not hearing from God in the way that they that would kind of wake them up. And so it falls to, well, he's just this, and I'll do that. There's a danger that we can, without thinking, without paying attention, slide into that same kind of transactional relationship with God, that we can think of him as less than personal. And we have so much more than they did. We have that whole story, but we have Jesus has already come. God with us. He's, he's come and he's been with us. He, he said, I am going away and it's good that I go away because if I don't go away, you won't receive the Spirit. And so he sends his Holy Spirit and all of us, not just the prophets, but all of us are sealed with his Holy Spirit. He has made his covenant community, and not just with Israel, whether they're believers or not, but with all human beings who are believers who have trusted in him. And so this is the, the blessings that we have. If we neglect these things, if we turn away from them, if, they, if we think less of them or think of them less often, we're in danger of falling into a transactional relationship with our God. God, look, I did my Bible study this morning. I spent three seconds, three minutes praying. I, 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 you know, I give, look how much money I give to the church. Why are you not being good to me right now? Because we're looking at it transactionally. If instead we say, Lord, why are you bringing this into my life? You must be teaching me something. Help me to know. Help give me wisdom. Help me to understand. And trust him because it's a human, it's a, not a human being, I'm sorry. Lord, sorry. 
It's not a human being. He's a person. He's an individual. He, he has a personality. He has a will. He has a mind, emotions. He is a person. And, and you have a relationship with a person. You have a transaction with a vending machine. So this is the warning I think that we're getting here is, is there is no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There's nobody to point them toward the true and the living God yet. Samuel's still a little boy. He's still growing up at this point. God's going to do wonderful things through Samuel, but we really need that king. And so for us, as we're waiting and we're looking forward and we're anticipating, we're wanting our king. We want our king to return to help us to remember, to see most clearly, to experience on a personal basis that our religion is not transactional. It is love at its heart. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord, love your neighbor. That's not transactional. Love doesn't say, I'll love you if you give me something back. So this is the heart of our religion. This is what God has worked in us. It's, it's what he pictured, he draws out tries to draw out of Israel at this time, and he's, he's bringing it to us now and saying, there is a king, and he has come, and he's coming again. So the warning here for us is to not fall into that transaction, to not fall to that, to struggle, to remember in this world that's leaning way the other direction, to remember in this world, God is personal, and he cares. He, he wants to hear from me. He commands me to pray. He's given me his word, not just, the, not just the writings of Moses, not just Joshua. He's given me the entire canon of scripture. He's given me a communion of saints who all know the Lord from the least to the greatest of them so that I can, in community, grow in the Lord. That's what he's given us. That's the promise and that's our hope. So let's stick to that. Let's cling to that. Let, let Phineas and, and uh, Hophni be a warning to us, a warning clarion that we can begin to slide into very easily that transactional, that what do I get out of this? And instead look to, Lord, I get everything. In Christ, I have it all. Thank you. What can I give now? How can I pray for others? How can I serve others? That's, that's what the new covenant community is supposed to look like. Great to have this contrast between the two. Great to keep them in our eyes. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you have made us into a people. There is no Greek or Jew, Jew or Gentile, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but you've brought us all together to be your covenant people. Lord Jesus, you've filled us with your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've, you've commanded us to pray. You've even taught us how to pray. And so, Lord, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the, the, the community that we're part of, encourage each other to never treat you transactionally, but to recognize you are a personal, a loving, an intimate God, God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this in his name for our deep joy and for his great glory. Amen.